Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua, and my guest today is Dale Kedwitz, whose latest book is titled The Mapai Mundi of Medieval Iceland. Dale, a very warm welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Dale, we're here, of course, to talk about your book, but I think it's only right that we start from, I'd say, your origin story, because you, Dale, have quite the tale to tell, don't you? You, you weren't always fated to be an historian of medieval Icelandic cartography, were you? Uh, no, no, that, that's right. Um, um, I, I think anyone's entry point into cartographic history tends to be uh, a bit roundabout. But um, in, in my case, I became interested in Iceland first uh, when I came here um, in 2004. Um, and I came on a geology field trip. Um, I wanted to uh, be an earth scientist. But I came to Iceland uh, to study these glacial and volcanic landscapes. Uh, but while I was here, I went to uh, uh, a place called Sapnahuset, which uh, is a, a, a part of the, the National Museum of Iceland. Uh, and there I bought, um, uh, uh, I saw some um, an exhibition of manuscripts, of Icelandic medieval manuscripts, and I bought in the museum gift shop uh, my first saga, Njál saga, and uh, Caroline Larrington's uh, translation of the Poetic Edda. And um, I remember reading them when I was in Iceland uh, on the Lackey uh, basalts, uh, a huge uh, lava plain in the south of Iceland. Uh, And and I was captivated, and and I knew right then that uh, I had to go to university and and study uh, literature instead of earth sciences. And how did you make the jump from literature to history <laughs> um well, well i i think my my research kind of falls between the the two as a, as a lot of map historical research does um uh, one, one doesn't train as as a map historian but but comes through different uh disciplinary branches so so i began in 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 uh studying literature and and of course as as a kind of extension of medieval textual culture, uh, maps are written in language, um, they kind of belong to that field of philological study. Um, and, and But, but there, there are specialists in map history coming from, from literature, history, art history. It, it's a multidisciplinary field. It needs that kind of multidisciplinary approach. That's true. Yeah. And you did mention earlier you had an interest in geology, do you still feel a passion for that field? Have you been able to to fulfill that passion? Uh, I mean, to to an extent, they they feel um, they they feel a lot more similar to one another than I think you would you would imagine. So, um, one of the things I remember when I was here originally uh, uh, studying geology was that we were taking a coach along the south coast of Iceland, and uh, our tour guide, uh, uh, who is a woman called Solveig, an Icelandic woman, uh, 
uh, didn't know much about geology, but she had a lot to say about uh, various stories attached to the landscape. And and one of these I remember as a 17-year-old was her uh, pointing out a farm uh, on a cliffside and saying uh, to us all that there was an ancient Icelandic story about uh, about a farmer who lived there who um, was uh, exiled, committed to exile from Iceland for a killing, for a murder, and uh, had to leave the country for three years. But, but on leaving, turned back and looked at his farmstead and the mountains behind them and, and decided that he would rather forfeit his life and stay in Iceland uh, than go away. Um, and, and it was years later that I found out that that story is from, uh, from the Alsaga. Uh, it's the story of uh, Gunnar of Hlivarendi. And, um, and that kind of, that, that ability to make the landscape speak to you, um, either through the, the kind of stories, the narratives attached to the landscape, or through kind of explaining the, the geological processes that shaped them, uh, feel quite nicely cognate. <laughs> and, and actually... Um, the places I, I, I went to study kind of these glacial landscapes in the UK, kind of fossilized uh, glacial landscapes. Um, uh, so so I, I went to the Lake District, I remember, in the north of England uh, with the same geology group. Um, and some years later, when I was doing my master's uh, in Norse and Viking studies at the University of Nottingham, uh, we went to the Lake District yet again, but, but to study it from the perspective of of uh, place name studies. There's a very rich uh, uh, kind of Scandinavian inheritance in place names. Uh, uh, Even some saga narratives are located in the north of England. Um, So so there's plenty of opportunities to go to the same places and study them from from a kind of literary, historical and uh, geological perspective. Uh, so I wouldn't say it drives my research, but it, but it certainly kind of underpins my passion uh, in the subject. Yeah, surely. Well, that's a very interesting story, but it is a topic best left for another day. But it does quite <laughs> helpfully bring us to the subject of today's podcast, which is your book, The Mapai Mundi of Medieval Iceland. Now, I must confess that before opening this book, I had little to no idea what a Mapai Mundi was. And as I soon found out, it's not really a map in the modern conventional sense. Could you begin by telling us what exactly the words Mapa Mundi refer to? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, uh, that's an excellent question. Um, uh, literally, Mapa Mundi is a, it's a compound of two Latin words. Uh, mapa, meaning something like cloth or napkin, and Mundi, uh, meaning the world, Mundus. And, and medieval Mapa Mundi is a term that modern and and very often medieval thinkers attached to uh, these attempts to visualize um, the earth or, or a part of its surface. Um, that, that said, the, the word mapamundi didn't necessarily uh, denote uh, a drawing of the world. It could as well be uh, a geographical uh, description uh, in, in written in text, in literature. Um, but, but what we what we have from these maps uh, are attempts to visualize part of the world. Um, kind of counterintuitively as well, um, I think we assume that map history started small and got big. Uh, so we, we begin with local or regional depictions and then sort of graduate outwards uh, to maps that show the whole world. 
<clears throat> but but actually uh, the, the first maps we have uh, in medieval Europe were attempts to visualize totality. Uh, so, so they're depictions of a whole world and maybe your place within it. Uh, but that comes much before regional maps. Well, you've got quite a few Icelandic maps that you've referred to the, in this book. You've got hemispherical maps, you know, TO maps, zonal maps. I was wondering if you could tell us a useful way of categorizing these particular Icelandic Mapai Mundi that you've studied, and what would the defining characteristics of each category of these maps be? Uh, certainly. Um, so so me medieval Europeans had, had a, a range of, of conventions for depicting the world in visual form. Uh, we call all of them uh, Mapai Mundi, but as you point out, there are several kind of distinct varieties of Mapai Mundi. Um, so, so the, the, the first two you mentioned, the, the hemispherical and zonal maps, uh, kind of constitute a species of maps that take the entire uh, Earth as their, as their object. Uh, their depictions are very much a global space. Um, so so they, they show the, the Earth as a sphere, uh, represented as a circle, uh, and they tend to show the latitudinal distinction of various climatic zones. Um, this had all been theorized in antiquity. Um, there were mathematical proofs of the Earth's sphericity done with work with shadows in, in antiquity. Um, and, and in the Middle Ages, these maps kind of showed uh, where the habitable portions of the Earth are. Uh, so, so the medieval conception of the globe was, uh, as, as we know it to be, that the poles are, are cold and, and frigid, they're frozen and uninhabitable, and, and they had this idea that the equator, kind of just below uh, Saharan Africa, was, was too intensely hot uh, for human habitation. So, so they situate all of human civilization and history in the Earth's northern hemisphere. Uh, the hemispherical world maps do this by showing uh, usually the what we call the parallels of latitude. Uh, so these are kind of theorized quantities like the equator, where, where the, the, the uh, day and night are always the same length throughout the year. Uh, and then you have the, the, the polar circles in both hemispheres, where for at least one day a year, you get a day uh, when the sun doesn't rise or, the, uh, or doesn't set. Um, so, so these are kind of mathematical conjectures based on uh, spherical geometry. Um, that is kind of the hemispherical and zonal maps. Um, but there are other species of medieval map which are much better known and much more, more talked about, which we call uh, TO maps. And, and these are so-called because they, they don't depict global space. They just depict... Uh, the, uh, the the kind of the space inhabited by human civilization and history. So they conceptualize this as a circle, kind of, uh, we know this circle from hemispherical and zonal maps to be located on the Earth's northern hemisphere. Uh, and this circle is divided into three continental spaces. Uh, these are Africa, Asia, and Europe, uh, divided by three waters. So you have the Mediterranean Sea, which is at the, the medius of, of Terai, the middle of the lands. Um, that's where the name comes from. And, and then you have the rivers Nile and Don kind of dividing uh, 
all, all the Earth's lands into uh, three parts, three continental spaces. And, and these are the kinds of maps in which we find uh, place names. Uh, so, so the world tends to be centered on, on the most important places in medieval Christianity, like, like Rome and Jerusalem. Uh, and, and we find uh, various other place names written, uh, possibly in a variety of medieval languages, but usually Latin uh, within this circle. Now, if we could just zoom out briefly and survey all these Icelandic maps more generally, yes. what sets the Icelandic Mapai Mundi apart from medieval maps from elsewhere in Europe? You know, what comes to mind is, of course, the Hereford Mapai Mundi, perhaps the most well-known within the genre. Uh, that, that's a very good question. Uh, and and, it, and it's, it, the, the answer is precisely the reason that there hasn't been a book about medieval Icelandic Mapai Mundi until now. Um, in that I think that there's actually not much difference in, in these maps. They, they belong to uh, very conventional types that were copied uh, across medieval Europe. The, the medieval Islamic world had its own kind of uh, iconographic traditions for depicting the world. Um, uh, and and they're, they're, they're very much related to and, and show the same kind of world as uh, contemporary world maps like the Hereford Mapamundi of around uh, 1300 or the very important Salter maps of around the, the second quarter of the 13th century. Um, the Icelandic examples uh, were copied in Iceland. Um, they are translated in some instances uh, from Latin, uh, the, the kind of super-regional uh, language of medieval scholarship, into uh, the vernacular language into Old Norse Icelandic. Um, and, and they're interesting, really, for, for what Icelandic thinkers are using these for. Um, because, of course, we don't just encounter maps floating around in culture on their own, uh, but they're drawn into manuscript books with other texts, with other images. And, and they were drawn for a reason. They, they were drawn uh, so that the, uh, the thinker, the author, could think through uh, certain questions about Icelandic identity, about geography and history. Mm -hmm. And I do have something I observed about the aesthetic quality of these maps, because unlike, say, the Hereford Mundi, these maps from Iceland aren't particularly, I would say, ornately decorated. There aren't many artistic descriptions of, of depictions of people, of places, of buildings. Yes. And... They are mostly composed of just words, you know, arranged in concentric circles and lines. Was this a conscious choice on the part of cartographers? And would you be able to venture a guess as to why that was the case? Uh, yeah. Um, well, 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 yes. I mean, uh, medieval Mapai Mundi could be very expensively produced and beautiful artifacts. Um, so, so the Hereford Mapamundi, which is the most famous and, and the largest to survive uh, to today, uh, was, was this huge uh, map uh, painted in all sorts of colours and with gold leaf um, onto a single vellum, so a single calf skin. Uh, so, so it's this huge kind of cow-shaped map uh, on the wall of a medieval church uh, on Hereford Cathedral in England. Um, Many other maps were copied into manuscript books uh, with varying degrees of, of kind of uh, artistic flair uh, or ornamentation. Um, the Icelandic examples are, as you say, very plain to look at. Uh, 
uh, the, the hemispherical and zonal maps are, are really, uh, we can think of them as diagrammatic. They're, they're line drawings uh, showing things like the equator, the tropics, the polar circles, with just lines and, and inscriptions on them. Uh, whereas the, the Vive maps, which are the most kind of, uh, the most exceptionally detailed maps from medieval Iceland, uh, they're not illustrated like the, the Hereford map, which, which contains, you know, 1100 texts and pictures and, and various other things. Um, but the, these maps are just kind of, um, uh, place names and, and very short inscriptions arranged into a, a vaguely geographical uh, framework. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about Icelandic Papa and Modi in particular, you, you talk about how they are copied instead of being created. So were any of these works conceived or produced exclusively in I Iceland? So there is a sense in which these maps are not uh, are not original works. Uh, they tend to be uh, copied from earlier maps or, or compiled from uh, various written descriptions of world geography. So, so these maps take a lot of their information from very traditional sources, uh, like Isidore of Seville's etymologies, uh, like the histories of Erosius, uh, and other medieval writers who were interested in, in, in the world and its parts. Um, there are um, local, uh, probably Icelandic contributions to these maps. Uh, so the, the map from Vive, uh, produced in around 1225-1250, uh, um, is the earliest map to show uh, the Scandinavian countries as distinctive regions. Uh, it doesn't use a traditional uh, kind of coverall uh, vocabulary for Scandinavia, but breaks it down into into constituent regions. Um, and, th and there are certainly other Icelandic editions uh, that are written in Old Norse or a combination of Old Norse and Latin uh, that, that are certainly uh, original. Um, and, and it's really the, the charge of originality that has kind of seen these maps neglected uh, because um, people who have been interested in them have wanted to use them somehow as, as sources for, for, I guess, what the most obvious narrative uh, that these maps could fit into would be, uh, which is the Viking explorations of, uh, of, of, of settlement and, and raiding, trading uh, uh, a few centuries earlier in the Viking Age. Uh, of course, we know uh, mostly from Icelandic literature that the Vikings had extensive uh, geographical interests. And, and the disappointment in these maps has been uh, that they don't really articulate much uh, about these voyages of exploration and settlement. They're, they're, they're more focused on, on a, very, uh, a very traditional but also kind of connected European view of, of what uh, the world looked like. Um, Icelanders are drawing these maps and, and more making the case for their, for their Europeanness, their kind of cosmopolitanism, uh, their connection to other European elites who were who were drawing the same kinds of maps centered on the same kinds of places. Uh, these maps are doing kind of important cultural work that isn't necessarily uh, just about the Icelanders uh, divulging their geographical knowledge uh, at the time these maps were produced. Um, so we find 
we find emissions that have kind of frustrated people looking at them. Um, these maps don't show places that we know Icelanders in those periods knew, um, but, but they were never trying to do that. Okay. So what kinds of place names do we find in these maps? And what do they tell us about, say, the influences and connections between Iceland and the wider world? Um, they, they, they draw from a variety of, of sources, as all medieval maps did. Uh, some uh, ancient and, and some contemporary. Uh, and, and again, a combination of, of written and oral sources. Um, so, so for, for example, um, um, the Vive map, which, which has this expansive uh, depiction of world geography, is very interested in places uh, uh, talked about in the Bible. Uh, so pays particular attention to uh, to the coastal Levant and, and the places um, uh, in, in Central Asia and across the Fertile Crescent, in Mesopotamia, the Parthian kingdoms, uh, all these places that were described in Roman literature. Um, as, as well as Africa, the, the African descriptions are, are prevailingly limited uh, to the North African kingdoms subjugated by the Roman Empire. Um, so, so we have this kind of influx of traditional names pulled from various sources. To these, medieval Europeans added uh, a variety of names drawn from their more, more mundane local experience. Uh, so, so the map's depiction of Europe tends to be the most modernized, the most reflective of an interest in, in contemporary political structures in, in what Europe uh, might actually have been like. Uh, so uh, only on one map uh, do we have uh, a depiction of Iceland, um, which is situated in, in the very northwest of the map, immediately below the inscription Europe on the map's frame. So they're very much trying to say something about where Icelanders were seeing themselves and, and who they were seeing themselves as connected to. Um, and, and tying themselves into, yes, a, a wider world. Uh, but but the, the name Iceland, as it appears on maps, is is interesting, and and one I do try and write a bit about. Um, in in that its earliest appearance, the earliest appearance of the name Iceland, uh, from from what I can gather, is uh, appears in medieval England uh, on a map we call the Cotton Map, sometimes the Anglo-Saxon Cotton Map, and this map was produced at Canterbury in around 1050. And, and people have occasionally noticed that this map contains uh, an inscription, Iceland. Um, but, but, but what they haven't really noticed is that that appearance of uh, a supposedly Old Norse Icelandic place name appears before any sort of alphabetic writing in a Scandinavian language. Uh, it, it appears uh, around 1050, so just after Iceland's conversion, before really we get kind of literature and books being produced in Iceland. Uh, so, so this this place name, which is, you know, it, it could be Old Norse, it could be Old English. There's, there's not much in the language to distinguish between, uh, between um, the two versions of that place name. Um, yeah, we, we have no idea of the, the kind of oral channels that led to an ecclesiastic, possibly a monk in Canterbury, hearing the name Iceland, which, which must have been from 
uh, travelers' tales or, or, or reports from missionary activity. Um, but, but these maps do speak to, uh, to a very connected uh, world, uh, to a very connected Europe, and, and, and a Europe that very much looks outwards to, uh, to uh, more remote geographies as well. Most certainly, and I think another indication of these intimate connections would be the use of different languages, which you alluded to earlier, to label different places. And even in, in one of the chapters, you talk about how the tropical signs of Cancer and Capricorn are labelled in the vernacular instead of in Latin. What languages were used firstly in annotating these maps? And what would the difference be of presenting something in Latin or something in Norse? What does it say about these maps? Um, th this is an area in which I, I think research is, is only recently is only recently happening. Um, uh, so, so I know for sure that, that uh, there's more written on this uh, very recently in Alfred Hyatt's uh, dislocations. Uh, so, so there's uh, the question of, of language as it appears on medieval maps is ongoing. Um, a few people now have, have observed that medieval maps tend to be uh, multilingual artifacts, especially uh, in the regions in the, the immediate knowledge of the map maker and, and audiences. Uh, so, so on the Hereford map, for for instance, uh, the, the geographical place names within the map circle are prevailingly written in Latin, uh, but, but there are many names around England written in English, uh, with perhaps a very slight preference for for naming places that were very important to the church, uh, ecclesiastically significant, uh, they might be named in Latin, uh, a kind of more elevated uh, language than the local. Um, on Icelandic maps, um, as, as a kind of philologist, I'm very interested in, in precisely questions about, about what language and translation uh, impart and, and, and how these go into uh, the production of maps as textual artifacts that relate to very broad literatures and histories. So I was interested in, in which parts of medieval Icelandic maps have Latin and which have uh, names in other languages. Uh, and as you point out, the, the very technical kind of hemispherical and zonal maps, which are based on, on uh, earlier medieval uh, Latinate discourses in natural philosophy, talking about the sun's course, um, the, the earth's uh, spherical nature. Uh, these tend to translate their inscriptions into a more easily understandable vernacular. Uh, so we have uh, words like the uh, circulus equinoctialis, which would be the Latin for for uh, the uh, the equator, the, the the circle along which. Uh, day and night are of equal length. Uh, that, that's translated into Icelandic uh, part for part as Yap Daigris Fingur, which isn't interestingly the medieval Icelandic word for equator, it, the modern Icelandic word for equator, which is Mithboig, like the middle ring. Um, but but it's, a, it's a medieval attempt to put Latin into something uh, more people could understand. Um, what we see on the the Vive map is interesting because because we we know that the Icelanders had this capacious understanding of world geography. We know from sagas that they uh, traversed places like 
uh, Byzantium, uh, like uh, the like Russia, the Vikings moved across the Baltic and through the Volga into uh, Eastern Europe and beyond. Uh, there are um, there are reports of, of, of Vikings serving in the in the the king's retinue in Byzantium in Istanbul. Um, we know that Icelanders had this capacious vernacular vocabulary for talking about places like Garðarikki, which is Russia, and and uh, and Miklagarð, which is uh, uh, which is Constantinople, uh, modern Istanbul. Um, but they tend to use Latin on their maps uh, unless they're writing about places with uh, with Scandinavian presence, uh, so so the Scandinavian regions. Um, which interestingly relates to contemporary Icelandic literature in, in various ways. Now, a final thing I observed about the geographical representation in these maps is the way the maps are oriented. Now, you're, you mentioned the zonal and the Vithae maps, which were oriented with the northern hemisphere, if I'm not wrong, at the bottom, presumably from the perspective of the Icelandic viewer looking southwards to the rest of the world. We sometimes describe maps as egocentric, you know, with the cartographer, the place of origin being the focal point of the map. Yeah. Would you say this was the case for, for the maps you studied? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I think any map has that, uh, has that capacity for, for being uh, anthropocentric or, or egocentric either. They, they always, they, they centre or they privilege a... a particular view uh, on the world they seek to present. Uh, no, no map is a, a neutral or transparent record of geographical reality. Uh, so, so we know, for instance, with with modern maps uh, of the Mercator projection, for instance, which tends to be uh, centred on, on England and, and kind of show the, uh, the world's mid-latitudes that much bigger uh, sizes than they actually are, so so that we kind of get a very a small Africa and a massive Greenland, for instance. Um, these maps kind of centre and privilege uh, a particular uh, person's uh, vision on the world. Uh, likewise, medieval maps uh, they, they're not they're not transparent uh, records of 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 reality. Uh, that culminates in that kind of modern, perfect understanding of the world. That's not what they are, um, but but rather they're, they're built around a, a medieval perspective on the world. Um, so, so they they typically in the in the Middle Ages uh, place Jerusalem at their centre because Jerusalem is the epicenter and focal point of world history and uh, and of geography in the incarnation. Of Christ, of course, um, and and they tend to show a kind of uh, Europe uh, on the on the kind of edge of the map, the, the places where the map was produced, like England or or, or Iceland, uh, tend to be located uh, far out, uh, and and this is part of the map's historical argument. So so uh, these maps are are witnesses to to the sort of evangelizing of the world. Um, so so the, the the peripheral depiction of places like Iceland show that the, the church is diffused across the whole of the world, um, that they're kind of statements on the, the progress of world history. Uh, and, and, and on the south orientation, um, that, that's also um, 
it's it's one of the insoluble problems with with this corpus of maps I was working with because as uh, maps tend to be oriented in the Middle Ages to the etymological sense of the word. So, so uh, our word to orient comes from the Latin oriens, which is east. Uh, so, so maps like the Hereford map tend to place east at the top. And, and this is in order to venerate the holy places of Christianity, which were located far away eastwards in, in uh, Jerusalem and its surroundings, uh, and, and also to kind of encode uh, as I said, this kind of historical narrative onto the map so that you could read it in a sense from from east, uh, which uh, uh, in which direction uh, paradise was located. So you see the origins of humanity at the very top of the Hereford map and you kind of climb down its historical scale into Europe and, and find kind of modernity in the West. Um, the Icelandic maps are unique for all showing south of the top. Uh, and, and this is a sort of, uh, it's a sort of difficult problem because um, it, it makes sense, as you say, uh, to depict the world kind of reaching out from your position in the north, uh, looking southward. So that makes very good sense. Um, but what's strange about the Icelandic corpus is that we have various map genres depicted. Uh, so we have five maps from Iceland. We have two hemispherical maps and one zonal map, and we have two TO maps, and they all place uh, south at the top, uh, which is an interesting and surprising conceit to occur to a range of map makers independently. Um, but, um, but but seems to be more inspired by the models that were available to, to medieval copyists. Um, uh, zonal and hemispherical maps were usually uh, with north of the top, and, and this makes sense in kind of uh, in drawing them because they're kind of uh, they're focused on the world's uh, geometry. Uh, so, so going from north and the polar circle uh, southwards makes sense. Um, but but yeah, the TO maps were very usually with east of the top. Um, but in this case, it's the uh, from Iceland, the TO maps are the earliest of the maps we have from Iceland. So, so, um, so they, they can't have been influenced by the extant models that we have, the other maps drawn in Icelandic books. Um, so, so it's a very interesting and, and remarkable change, but, but, uh, but uh, we're not sure on why that is. So we've been talking quite a bit about how these maps position Iceland in relation to the wider world, but the hemispherical map in particular, which you discuss in your first chapter, positions Iceland in relation to the physical universe as we know it. What can this map tell us about Icelandic conceptions of astronomy and cosmology? Uh, that's, that's an excellent question. And uh, uh, re really, it pays to revisit uh, what I said right at the beginning, uh, the, the definition of, of Mappa Mundi, um, because we know that, that Mappa means something like cloth or napkin, and Mundus means world. And if you're a map historian, you tend to be very interested in the Mappa part and, and to kind of dissect what we mean by Mappa, really interrogate, scrutinize that term. Um, but we very seldom do the same with Mundus. Uh, what world do these maps uh, depict um, 
what what do they show uh how far do they how far do they reach um and and i think what what i try and convey in the book is is that that mundus uh can kind of resonate with with the modern english words uh world which how it's generally translated but also uh globe and 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 earth um which are overlapping but but kind of distinct meanings in english but tend to be collapsed into one another in the middle ages so so for sure the, the hemispherical map doesn't just show uh the world but but it kind of shows the um it shows the uh circle of the moon around the spherical earth it shows the the sun uh and its passage across the night sky uh of course we're thinking about a geocentric universe uh so, so the hemispherical map is marked with the zodiac uh which is the series of 12 constellations through which the sun appears to move in the sky over the course of a solar year um and and so too is the hemispherical map a, a depiction of the kind of the whole physical universe and the the clocked processes that we use to measure time on earth so the passage of the sun and the moon the generation of the tides that they cause um the, these are cosmological drawings um and 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 they intersect all sorts of medieval ideas about natural philosophy about the order of the world and that which makes it uh that there are kind of species of of a scientific diagram and in addition to what they tell us about the intellectual environment in which they were created did any of these maps have say practical implications you talk about how they tell tidal movements and time for instance were they practically applied um I think so in their in their way. I mean, they, they appear as illustrations in um, in in these compendious volumes of of various texts and images on astronomical, uh, natural, philosophical questions. Um, so um, I go into this in in quite some detail in my second chapter on the zonal map. Uh, what I'm interested in is. is uh not so much just the map on its on its own uh this map only contains three written inscriptions it's a very kind of slender artifact but but my question was why was it drawn by a medieval thinker what kind of intellectual work is it doing uh, and the way you work that out is by going through the manuscript in which it was drawn and and seeing what the relations are intellectually from one item to the next um i had to be very kind of mobile with this project because when i was uh doing research onto the map so i really tried to to put aside any sort of preconceptions about maps and their geographical interests and and what they are what what i think they are doing based on readings of maps within the confines of their own outlines uh, i really tried to uh read these books and respond to the maps as uh a medieval person would have seen them so so the zonal map is uh is just one part of a, of a kind of complement of of medieval diagrams that that show uh quite surprisingly i think uh the structure of the physical universe um so so there are four diagrams it, it belongs to uh the first is a diagram that shows the uh the heliocentric motions of of venus and mercury uh medieval thinkers had 
had reasoned that, that these planets must circle the sun and not the earth uh, because they can never have the earth come between them and the sun. And, and this makes total sense because we know they're the inner planets. Um, the next diagram shows the motions of the outer planets. Uh, so, so these are, are, are Saturn, Jupiter and Mars. Um, and, and they both explain a phenomena based on their observation. So, so um, it, it's, a, it's a, an observational phenomenon that we see the, the planets kind of rising and setting day, night in, night out, and they tend to move one way across the night sky. And of, of course, this is because the Earth is moving past them. Um, but for times, they appear to move in the opposite direction, uh, what we call retrograde motion. And these medieval diagrams were attempts to explain the, these kind of observational phenomena for, for wide medieval audiences. Then we have the zonal map in, in this sequence, and then we have a, a diagram showing the eclipses. Um, so what we have isn't just um, just a kind of narrow focus on, on global space, uh, but really the whole uh, physical universe. And, and these uh, diagrams are providing us a background uh, to the motions of the sun and the moon, uh, which are so important to medieval thinkers uh, because uh, it's these kind of problematic motions that mess up the calendar. Uh, so, so knowing when to celebrate movable feast days, like Easter, which doesn't fall on a fixed date every year, uh, medieval people needed a science that, that could work out uh, kind of squaring the lunar and the solar calendars to work out when to celebrate movable feast days. Uh, so maps were kind of providing a background context to that kind of computer's operation, as, as we call it, uh, explaining why the motions of the sun and the moon are so problematic uh, to medieval notions of keeping time. And as far as these were scientific diagrams designed specifically to understand the movements of um, you know, planets and the sun and the moon, were they in any way scientifically accurate in a modern sense? Um, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's difficult. I mean, um, I, I think what, what is, uh, what's exciting about them is, is that they respond to, to problems we could have in, in kind of thinking rationally, looking at the night sky and seeing the movements of the inner or outer planets. Uh, these are difficult things to explain, and 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 we forget that there was no uh, there was no Copernican model of the universe uh, until several centuries later, uh, and what the what medieval Europeans were proposing, and and what they took from from ancient treatises on 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 planetary kinematics, like like the works of Ptolemy and other uh, med, uh, other ancient thinkers. Uh, these kind of work for making sense of observations, and, and what you get in studying aspects of medieval science is is kind of like a front row seat to to people very earnestly uh, trying to work out scientific problems. Uh, so 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 thinking of them in terms of of modern accuracy, I mean, of course, sometimes they were right and and sometimes they were wrong. Uh, uh, and, and there, there are these kind of glaring moments of of 
of kind of recognition when we see, for instance, the a medieval diagram depicting the heliocentric motions of Mercury and Venus, uh, which most people would not assign intellectually to the Middle Ages at all. Uh, but, but this was an accepted idea. It was in all the major astronomical handbooks of Sacrobosco and, and various other widely read thinkers. Uh, and, I, and I think that's the exciting thing about a lot of this material. You see very earnest engagement with, with big questions in natural philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, but of course, you, you caution against interpreting maps purely for their geographical and cosmological histories. And that's what I think you set out to do at the start of this book, to examine the Mapa Mundi alongside texts that they originally accompanied and situate yeah. these maps within the wider context of contemporary vernacular literature. Yes. How would you say your methodology in this respect has differed from other scholars who've studied these Mapa Mundi? Um. Well, yes, I mean, we tend to study maps alongside other maps. Uh, the only thing a map historian likes better than a map is an atlas, you know, like the the opportunity to study these uh, collections of maps. Um, and, and I suppose my, my interest and my, my origin into, into uh, this discipline w- was through thinking about literature and thinking about the written record and recognizing maps as extensions of textual culture and, and not a kind of special interest either within literary study. Um, so, so particularly in, in the last two chapters, the last three chapters of my book, which focus on on the hemispherical world maps, um, I'm able to make sense of them by, by applying them to uh, contemporary literatures, which are doing other things not necessarily related to to questions of, of geography and locality, but, but to to thinking about Icelandic history and their social origins, because these, these maps were drawn at a fascinating time. They were they were drawn uh, between around uh, twelve twenty five and fourteen hundred, uh, and this period saw uh, it saw the flowering of Icelandic literature in the vernacular. Uh, which is important for all of those uh, those of us who study sagas and and Icelandic poetry, uh, and they also uh, appear at this moment when Iceland transitions from being a commonwealth, uh, a republic uh, governed by Icelandic chieftains, Gothar, to a possession of the Norwegian crown in in the early 1260s. Uh, so, so they're witnesses to huge political. A geopolitical upheaval, uh, and I've been very interested in in the relationship between these maps and the kind of sovereign fantasies that Icelanders had in the period in which they were being drawn. Um, so, so I relate the the Vive map, which which is this exceptionally detailed uh, world map with all sorts of place names, uh, drawn at uh, a foundation that that Snorri Sturluson, uh, one of the great uh, authors uh, in medieval Icelandic literature and and himself a politician, uh, drawn at a monastery that he founded uh, in the 13th century. So, so I hold the map up against his his works like uh, like the opening chapters of his Heimskringla, the history of Norwegian kings, uh, which has a which turns on a, a geographical introduction at the beginning, uh, and also his his account of the origin 
uh, of Icelandic vernacular poetics, uh, which is his kind of big compendium called Snorra Edda, uh, which is a kind of uh, handbook to to thinking about reading, writing, uh, poetry in the Eddic tradition, drawing on Icelandic mythological figures. Um, so, so what I do is is compare aspects of geographical description for sure, but also kind of stories about the origins of the Icelanders. Uh, Icelanders are doing similar things to other European elites in this period. Uh, so they're tracing their their ancestry and their social origins to Troy. Uh, medieval elites like to think of themselves as descendants of Trojan exiles uh, following the Trojan War. Uh, and we have this in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. He, he relates Britain to an eponymous founder in Brutus and has this idea that the, the British kings derive from Brutus. And Icelanders are trying to do similar things. Um, so, so what I'm trying to do with this study of maps is show that actually they don't just relate to other maps, but, but they relate to all sorts of literatures and histories uh, that the Icelanders are very interested in at this time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you note that the hemispherical map, which appears at the beginning of the book, actually originated as a work of literary criticism. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Um, well, well, that's right. I mean, um, we, we think about what motivates uh, what motivates science uh, a, a lot in in any period, and it, it often wasn't just a matter of of natural philosophical speculation for its own right. Uh, it was often uh, working out your relationship to Roman literature. Um, so, so when I said the hemispherical map originates as literary criticism. Uh, what I mean is, is that it originates in a diagram uh, from Macrobius's commentary on the dream of Scipio. Uh, so Macrobius was a 5th century thinker who wrote a, a, a commentary on the very last part of Cicero's uh, De Republica, uh, this, uh, this uh, dialogue on Roman politics uh, compiled by Cicero. And, and what Macrobius does is, is that he wants to uh, make sure that uh, Cicero's description of the cosmos, uh, which is related at the end of this, of this, uh, this dialogue, uh, Cicero writes about uh, his protagonist, uh, uh, Scipio, is taken up by his grandfather in a dream uh, to look down on the earth and to look at the Roman Empire he's left behind. And it's a kind of vision in a dream about the scale of the Roman Empire, the nearness of its adversaries, and how the whole world is just a point and not very important. Um, but, but there's this cosmological description in Cicero that Macrobius wants to make sure doesn't contradict Virgil. Uh, so he writes this lengthy commentary that, that kind of tries to square descriptions of the cosmos in Cicero's De Republica with uh, the description of the cosmos in, in the works of, you know, the famous Roman poet Virgil. Um, so, so literature was, in a way, uh, one of the things people attempted to understand uh, using science, uh, or, or indeed using science to understand uh, literature. And I want to end this very fruitful discussion by talking about 
the conceptual framing of these maps. You talked earlier about how the Vithay maps emerged in what was a very geopolitically tumultuous environment in the region. And these maps, in your book, you say they were neatly organized according to what you refer to as a fourfold ordering of nature. You have fourfold car four cardinal directions, four seasons, even geographically, they were sometimes divided into four quarters. What is yes. the historical significance of this conceptual frame and how did it help help Iceland to respond to this environment of geopolitical turmoil? Well, thank you for that question, because uh, this is one of the entirely accidental things that can happen by, by reading medieval manuscripts and, and, and working from them to see what you can learn about their contents. Um, because when I was working with the Vithe maps, I noticed that, or, or many people have noticed, that they're enclosed within this kind of conceptual frame that correlates the four cardinal directions, uh, north, south, east and west, uh, with other fours that recur in nature. Uh, so, for instance, uh, the four elements, the four ages of man from from kind of uh, from uh, from youth to old age, uh, the four contrary qualities uh, like hot, uh, hot, cold, wet and dry, uh, the four principal winds, the four seasons. Um, medieval natural philosophers used these fours to to say to say something about the order of nature, that they're, they're all evidence that, that, uh, that um, the universe is div divinely made and, and harmoniously structured. Uh, you can look to any part of nature and, and see this recur recurrence of, of four. Uh, and, and, and the four seasons are really, I suppose, the only one we've inherited uh, today. We still talk about four seasons in, in, in English or, or in, in Europe, uh, which is a fairly arbitrary way of dividing the year. You could do it in other ways. Um, but when I was reading the manuscript, I saw that these maps were surrounded by these uh, quadripartite frames. But the other item preserved with them was uh, a register of 40 Icelandic priests. Uh, and this list is quite a, it's, it's quite, prob it's quite, uh, a difficult list. We don't really know why it was written, um, but it, it, it takes uh, 10 priests from every quarter of Iceland. Iceland was, was drawn into quarters for, uh, for juridical and representative purposes. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of political structure of the Icelandic Republic. Um, but this list takes 10 priests from each quarter, and this isn't reflective of the number of priests or anything like that. It's a very kind of symbolic gesture. But this list of 40 priests was combined with a quadripartite world map. Um, so, so I noticed that, that actually if you look at this manuscript, every item in it is structured around the number four. And, and I thought, what is... A medieval thinker trying to do with this map? Why are they trying to show, or why are they bringing together an image of the Icelandic Republic, uh, which has this four-part political structure, with a map of the world, which has a four-part kind of organic divine structure? What are they saying about Icelandic social and political institutions uh, and, and, and I argue in the book that, that they're bringing these images together to, to make a sort of point about, uh, about the legitimacy 
of Icelandic political structures. Uh, as there are four seasons, as there are four elements, as there are four ages of man, there are four quarters of Iceland. And, and that these kind of structures emerge historically uh, with, with a sort of inevitability, you know. Uh, and, and this makes sense when we think about the maps being produced in the middle of the 13th century, uh, when Norwegian political encroachment was picking up, when Iceland was at the brink of becoming no longer an independent republic ruled from the four quarters, but a possession of the Norwegian crown. Um, so so what, what it seems to me that the map is making a point about, about Icelandic political structure at the time that this uh, political structure was being threatened. So would you say this map was in some ways conceived as a means to construct an Icelandic national identity in the face of threats to their very existence? I think so. I think so. I think medievalists are often cautious about uh, about about thinking about uh, uh, medieval understandings of nation and uh, sure. uh, and, and also imputing too clean and clear motives to to text that we actually do struggle to to locate within time and space uh you know you can never be certain when or where something was produced um but, but it seems like me for sure that that the the map is only doing what other literatures and histories at this time are trying to do which is trying to make a case for for icelandic distinctiveness for icelandic identity in a period of of uh of internecine strife, uh, civil war, and mounting pressures from abroad. And that's very fascinating. I, I'll admit I've never thought of maps as a way to to make a statement about you know the politics or the or the structure of a country in response, no less, to geopolitical turmoil. So well, it is a very interesting angle to explore. Yeah, they they very much are. Maps do a lot of maps do a lot of political work. Uh, and 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 deconstructing, you know, their, their claims to transparency or objectivity is is sort of the first work of of any sort of map historian working with with these artifacts. Um, but there is, of course, um, uh, there is, of course, a, a suite of reasons that maps may be drawn, and and visualizing the places described in the Bible is, is very legitimate and. And so is is just plain interest in the world and its places. Um, but I think we should always be alert to to what a map is doing in its in its particular context and and whether it can have any uh, political or cultural uh, involvements uh, that are just lurking behind the surface. But I think you've done a very excellent job of examining these mapai mudi from a, a variety of many different angles, and and you've come to quite a few valuable conclusions about what they tell about medieval Icelandic thinking of that time. What do you think was the most important takeaway you had from writing this particular book? Uh, uh, thank you. Um, I think that the most important takeaway is, is precisely that, that um, maps don't just relate to other maps as, as various and, and complementary ways of depicting the Earth's surface. Um, this really was the the animating principle of the project. It was the the thing that started me uh, thinking about maps and how they relate to 
natural, philosophical, religious, political discourses. Um, but but I think what I would say the main takeaway is is that Icelanders didn't always center their world on on their own northern waters or, or the places coextensive with what we call the Viking diaspora. Um, but they were actually able to imagine uh, centers and peripheries within their own world, which aren't the ones we tend to assign to them in, in, our, in our historical research. We've tended to study even these maps for, 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 uh, for a relatively narrow range of historical questions. What, what do they tell us about uh, the Baltic literals? What do they tell us about Scandinavia? What, if anything, do they tell us about uh, Scandinavian discovery of America? Um, all of these questions uh, assume something about maps and also assume something about about uh, Icelandic culture and, and where it was. And, and what I try and do in my book is is to say that Icelanders are very often using maps and, and various geographical discourses not to focus on 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 matters of their own exceptionalism within Europe, but on their kind of European cosmopolitanism and their relatedness to other European cultures. And, and I think the version of Icelandic identity that we see uh, when we look at these maps is one that is uh, very much in touch with with the rest of Europe at this time, uh, not, not an isolated island far off doing its own thing in the North Atlantic, but, but a kind of uh, an intellectual culture that, that is doing all the kind of voguish things that, that other Europeans are doing in, in the continent and in England, uh, thinking about natural philosophy, uh, thinking about history and, and identity. Yeah, sure. And I think the best works of history are ones that, that take concepts that you don't really bother questioning, you know, the, the use of maps, Icelandic identity, and turn them on the head. And I think that's something you've done very well in this book. It's it's not a very big book. It's just 200 pages, but you've achieved a great deal in, in just 200 pages. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think we've taken up quite enough of your time today, Dale. So I'd like to wrap up with just one final question. If you could interview someone, anyone, for their new book in history, who would that be? Hmm. Um... The book I want to, the book I'd like to know more about right now is uh, is Chris Callow's uh, Landscape, Tradition and Power in, in Medieval Iceland. Um, because what, what Callow is interested in and, and what resonates with, with my current work is uh, precisely this transition from uh, Iceland being a republic, a commonwealth, uh, to being a possession of the Norwegian crown. Um, this book came out uh, with Brill just in 2020, uh, and, and it's very interested uh, in questions of, of continuity and change across this uh, across this political rupture, and in looking at uh, at various forms of Icelandic literature and historical writing uh, to think about questions like um, at this moment of big international uh, political strife. Why are the sagas so interested in recording regional or local disputes? Uh, sometimes they, uh, the main action of sagas is about uh, disputes in regions that were 
no longer important in the 13th century or had ambiguous kind of relevance to to uh, the political climate. And, and I, I think for a lot of us who are interested in in, in medieval Iceland, but, but also in, in kind of thinking about the relationship between locality and geography and history writing, uh, that's going to be a very important book for us to, to think about. Sure, and I hope I definitely hope to see Landscape, Tradition and Power in Medieval Iceland by Chris Callow on the New Books Network soon. Hopefully we'll have that to come in the coming weeks. Well, I've very much enjoyed our conversation today, Dale. It's been truly enlightening and it's interesting to see how medieval maps are packed with so many layers of meaning. It's helped me and I'm sure many of our listeners appreciate maps in a very different light. So thank you very much. We'd definitely love to have you on the program again. Thank you very much. On that note, thanks for your time and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History.